Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, April 22nd, 2010, 40th anniversary of Earth Day. And boy, am I in a great mood. We're going to be talking about Earth Day here shortly. In fact, I'm probably going to lead off with it. Ah, yes. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is just no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And you know what we're doing? We're taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. That's right. There's a such thing as right and wrong, truth and error, light and darkness. And uh, we side with God in basically saying that his word is truth and his word sanctifies us. And if you're saying something about God that contradicts God's word, uh, well, then you're not siding with God and the angels. You're siding with, uh, well, the other guy and his demons. And so, you know, that's what we, what we work from here. Anyway, today is the 40th anniversary of Earth Day. And I, I've been watching the Twitter streams and the Facebook comments about Earth Day and all the Christians out there and just going, oh, it's an Earth Day thing. And you know what? Listen, y'all have the wrong, wrong attitude about this. In fact, this should be a great day of Christian celebration. And you're saying, what? Are you out of your mind? Oh, no, I'm not. Let's, in fact, here's some celebratory sounds that I think should go along with Earth Day. Yeah, that's the sound of a, of a chainsaw. Here, let's 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 crank this thing up. Let's 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 cut some logs with this thing. Timber! Yeah, baby! <laughs> That's the greatest sound on earth. That's right, it's a day of virgin sacrifices. What? That's right, we're sacrificing virgin forest to the chainsaw. <laughs> I want some more of that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the smell of fossil fuels and chainsaw. Oh, I gotta tell you, that's some good stuff here. Now, 
You think, what has gotten into you, Rosebro? Well, yeah, I understand. I got to bring you up to speed. Listen, here's the deal. Okay. The environmentalists are the ones who've brought us Earth Day. And there's a whole bunch of people out there who are basically capitulating and saying, okay, you know, we got to be good stewards of the earth. And, and what they're trying to do is somehow, you know, work in this idea that, all right, maybe the environmentalists have a point and all that kind of stuff. The problem is, is there's no joy in it. And the, and here's the deal. I refuse to meet, be made to feel guilty because I'm alive. I refuse to be made to feel guilty because, quite frankly, I enjoy all of the resources uh, of the earth and put them to use and use them in my home and in my daily life. I refuse to be made to feel guilty for that. And see, that's kind of what's at the heart of Earth Day, isn't it? It's this angst and guilt that you're supposed to feel because you are participating in the rape of Mother Earth. And you know what? That's not it at all. And so I just, I, I think Christians need to basically hijack, subvert, and take over Earth Day. Now, let me give you an example of some environmentalists. Uh, this is a quick two-minute YouTube video. You'll get the idea of what's going on here. This We've got some environmentalist Earth Firsters sitting in an old-growth forest, basically mourning the loss of an old-growth tree. And uh, it's this is kind of like a tree funeral, if you would. Uh, listen carefully. Deep in the woods of North Carolina, an extremist eco-group called Earth First bewails the violation of American nature. I want to mourn the loss of all the old growth trees I've seen and tell them that we love them and that we don't want them to die that there are some people here who do care so i want you to know that trees that we care that's right let the trees know that you care i think we are deeply hurting in america i think we are deeply craving answers I think that we've lost our identity as we have evolved into technology and into industrialized society. Bring me to this cathedral. Bring me to those guys. Bring me yeah, the, the cathedral of the forest. To this rock that has the most incredible life. That makes me feel alive. I've looked at clear cuts in burnt forest and I've felt outraged, but I didn't scream and I didn't cry. Why don't you get it out there? Come on, go ahead and get it out. Get it off your chest. And I need to. It's okay. I, I affirm you. You're, you're in a safe spot. Go ahead and assume the fetal position and, you know, uh, get comfortable in, in the womb of Mother Earth and go ahead and just let it all out. Ah! Okay, I, I hope you feel better. Listen, here's the deal. 
Um, let's, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to a Genesis chapter one. That's right. Genesis chapter one. Just want to point something out to you. Genesis chapter one. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. In fact, I think this should be a great earth day passage. Let's just read Genesis chapter one, starting at verse one. I'm telling you, we Christians, we need to take over earth day. Uh, those of us who are orthodox, those of us who are following the historic Christian faith, we need to completely hijack this thing. I'm, I'm serious. We need to take it over, make it our own, and set the agenda. I refuse to play defense. I like offense. It's a lot more fun. So, in honor of Earth Day, let us, let us open up God's word. And see, this is how the liturgy, I mean, uh, the Earth Day liturgy really should go. Not any of this, Eco-justice garbage, none of that stuff, okay? It, 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 so, <clears throat> you know what? I wonder if I should, do I have a liturgy I can follow? Hang on a second here. I'm going to grab my treasury of daily prayer and maybe, maybe you do them, you know, hang on a second. All right, all right, hang on. If you have the Treasury of Daily Prayer, they have some wonderful daily things that you can do in there, uh, like matins, and uh, and then there's a daily uh, there's an daily office that you can pray, and it's not any of that Roman Catholic mysticism stuff. I mean, it's just good, solid, yeah, great things. Okay, so let's see here. I, I'm doing this ad hoc. Compline's the end of the day. Hang on a sec. Morning prayer. Mm-hmm. Okay, so <clears throat> now I, I cannot chant, so don't expect me to do it. But uh, we would begin our, our Earth Day liturgy um, with uh, kind of using a morning. Um, uh, here we go. Oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and will be forever. Amen. Alleluia, alleluia. Give glory to God, our light and our life. O come, let us worship him. And now for our Earth Day reading from Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. We read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning on the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees 
bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the days from the night and let them be for signs and for the seasons and for the days and the years and let let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning on the fourth day and God said let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every wing born every wing bird according to its kind And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning on the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Behold, I have given you every green plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for your food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to the everlasting Uh, And to everything that creeps on the earth and everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. So what we should do as Christians, we should completely take over this Earth Day thing, hijack it, and Focus in on the fact that God created the world in six days. He created humanity and he told us to subdue and have dominion over the earth and everything on it. And then we can do a litany of prayers. I mean, it would be wonderful. You can have prayers. Hang on a second. Let me pull. I, I did some of these earlier. I tweeted these out on Twitter and put them up on Facebook. Let me pull these up. I mean, a prayers to this effect. Um, uh, let's see here. Lord, we thank you. That we ask that you, we thank you for making trees smell so good that when we burn them in our fireplaces, uh, that it, it puts out a pleasing aroma. 
and gas logs just stink anyways, Lord. We thank you for, for making trees smell so good when we burn them. Or we can play prayers like this. Lord, we ask that you would remind us to smell the roses both before and after we cut them off and arrange them in a, in a vase. And then we can pray something else like this. Lord, we thank you for, uh, uh, we thank you and ask that you would teach us to obey your word, which tells us in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Lord, we thank you for modern farming techniques and for pesticides, which you have, which you use to give greater crop yields by which you give us our daily bread. Or we could pray a prayer. Lord, we thank you for the wood pulp that we need for making paper. And we praise you, God, for the smell and feel of brand new books. Oh, this is good stuff. And, uh, Lord, we thank you that when you return in glory, you will destroy the earth and make a new one, as uh, Second Peter chapter 3 says. You know, <clears throat> or we can say things like, uh, we can praise God and say something like, Lord, we thank you for the raw materials that were in the earth that we've mined from the earth in order to create the components in our computers. Lord, we thank you for the iron ore in the earth that we've mined and used to create our automobiles. Or we can say, Lord, we thank you for the billions and billions of barrels of fossil fuels that you've provided for, so graciously provided for us that we use to run our cars, our boats, and our airplanes. Lord, we thank you that without uh, without these raw materials that you have provided for us in your earth, we wouldn't be able to enjoy the modern conveniences that we have. Lord, we thank you for the renewable resource of good, hard tree wood that we use to make our homes with, that we use to make backyard furniture with, that we use, that we put in wood chippers and, and use to landscape our backyards with. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the gifts of these, of these wonderful trees that we are, that we have exercised dominion over and that we are subduing and using, uh, you know, in order to make our lives better. I'm telling you, that's what we Christians should do. We should be in your, in people's faces, praising and thanking God for the earth that he created and the resources that he's provided for us that make it possible for us to live the lives that we live right now and for advancing and for the minds that he's given us to understand and manage these resources and, and put them to use in such a way that we enjoy the modern conveniences that we all have. Our computers, our cars, um, the homes we live in, uh, the streets that we drive on. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the your gracious gift of asphalt and we thank you for for the wonderful gift of copper that we've been able to mine from mountains and and uh, and from under the earth and and be able to to weave into wires that we've connected the whole world via the internet lord we thank and praise you for the raw materials that you've provided for us to create satellites that we've shot up in, into into orbit around the earth and by which we're able to communicate with the pla- everybody on the planet you see <clears throat> Listen, environmentalists and liberals don't want you to have fun. They want you to feel guilt and angst. Let's hijack Earth Day and turn it into this great celebration 
of the planet that God has created for us and, the, and by which he provides for us richly and daily in tasty critters that we barbecue and eat uh, to uh, to the plants that we consume, to the bread that he, we get every day. Let's, let's turn this into this great celebration of the God who created us and the earth and has ta- called us to subdue and have dominion over this planet. I guarantee you, you do that. (laughs) Not only is that the right thing to do, to thank and praise God for the wonderful gifts that he's provided us, but it reframes everything. And then somebody emailed me. I actually didn't email me. Lunchbox sent me a tweet on Twitter. It says, seriously, though, how should we as Christians look at, at, you know, how do we manage the planet? Well, first of all, keep in mind, Okay, God is the one who's given us these gifts, and dominion and subduing it means that we need to manage these gifts in such a way that that they're there for successive generations. Because I mean, you know, if you know, I I think about um, uh, you know, those in places where fish have been overfished, and as a result of it, uh, there's streams that used to run every year with the salmon in, and but and now the salmon don't run because they've been overfished. Listen, we've got to manage the resources that God has given us. We've only got this planet, and we've only got these resources that by which we need to survive. So we need to keep our air clean. We need to keep our water clean. This is a way in which we love and serve our neighbor. And we need to make sure that we don't overuse the resources that God has given us and basically exploit them to the point where they're not there anymore for us. Okay, so that management implies the ability to keep in mind that God is the one who created these creatures and we need to use those resources within the limits of what those what those creatures and resources are capable of replenishing. So uh, if you want to hug a tree before we uh, before I cut it down, you know, you can go ahead and hug it. But uh, I'm going to. That's right. <laughs> Somebody making firewood. Ah, yes. Cutting down a virgin forest in order to make a house. Ah, some lovely lawn chairs. Oh, yeah, a mailbox. Shingles for a roof. <laughs> Sorry. I get a little bit excited. You know, that being the case, now with that, with this framework in mind, okay, you know, I'm telling you, let's hijack Earth Day. Let's take it over and let's turn it into this great celebration and a day of thanksgiving uh, to the God and Savior, uh, to our great God and Savior who has richly provided for us here on this planet and told us to subdue and to have dominion over the earth and to fill the whole earth. Ah, yes, that would be the thing to do. Anyway, uh, with that in mind, uh, <clears throat> I think I should switch gears here and, and read to you some, well, some people who don't, who I think just don't get it. And uh, so hang on a second here. Let me pull up, uh, pull this, this up using Instapaper. This is a great website. I've discovered Instapaper. And uh, <clears throat> let's, um, Let me play one of these things here. From the Huffington Post, 
making Earth Day a church day. By Matthew Sleeth, M.D. Huffington Post. Uh, Boy, this is a I cannot believe I did not think to go to this website earlier. I thought it was all about politics. I had no idea that it's a treasure trove of wacky theologians. Anyway, Earth Day is 40 years old. For most of these 40 years, the followers of Jesus have in large part been obstructionist or at best apathetic to the care of the planet that all humanity depends on in the pursuit of life and liberty. What a load of garbage. No, it's not even close to true. I refuse to be made to feel guilty for a sin I haven't committed. Yes. <clears throat> Let me continue. Matthew Sleeth says, but things are changing. In the past, I was asked, isn't Earth Day just for tree huggers and nature worshipers? Today, I'm more likely to encounter Christians who realize that we have to, we have come late to the table and want to help. It is no longer if Christians should celebrate Earth Day, but how? Oh, I agree. I think we should celebrate it. And the way we should celebrate the how is how I just said. Thanking God for the billions and billions and billions of barrels of oil that we consume every month. Thanking the Lord for the wonderful smell of the trees that we burn in our fireplaces. <laughs> Sorry. I would like to pause. On birthdays that end in zeros and contemplate, uh, contem- I like to pause on birthdays that end in zeros and contemplate their meaning. Milestones allow us to reflect on past accomplishments, lament opportunities lost, and plan for the journey ahead. The first Earth Day took place on April 22, 1970. The event's gestation was announced the previous year when the Cuyahoga River in Ohio caught fire and burned, although Cuyahoga had burned a dozen times before, the 1969 blaze caught the common person's attention. One doesn't need an advanced degree in chemistry to understand that water isn't supposed to catch on fire. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, we shouldn't be we shouldn't be polluting our rivers to the point where they catch on fire. That's not how we love and serve our neighbors, and that's not how we're supposed to manage the great gift that God has given us. On the way to Earth Day's 40th, there have been unexpected heroes and unlikely partnerships. Richard Nixon championed the EPA, and camouflaged hunters uh, crouching in the pre-dawn light became the advocates of wetlands. Once the answer was simply to stop, to stop, stop hunting, cutting, damming, and mining, but the threats and solutions in today's environmental problems are not as obvious. It was easier for Teddy Roosevelt and John Muir to see millions of buffalo disappear than it is to see tiny lead shot pellets destroyed a wetland. Who knows what flora have been displaced by the invasive Japanese honeysuckle, which seems to take over the state in which I live. Serious environmental preservation and conservation takes the work of multiple disciplines, but when environmental triumphs of the past are studied, moral leadership has been the thing that carried the day. Our current problems are not unique, but they are sorely lacking the input of biblical history available to the 80-plus percent of Americans who claim Christianity. On previous Earth Day anniversary, some religious leaders said that dominion gives us license to use up whatever we want without restraint. Nothing could be less in keeping with the overarching spirit of Scripture. Dominion implies tremendous responsibility. Just ask any parent or teacher who has dominion over a young child. That's actually a pretty good point. I agree. But see, dominion doesn't mean just saying no, stop hunting, stop mining. No, 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 no. That's the problem. I refuse to worship the earth and I refuse to be made to feel guilty for breathing and for living. And that's the problem with the goddess-worshipping, earth-worshipping environmentalists. 
So the solution is not stop hunting, stop fishing, stop mining, but instead it is mining and use and mining and hunting and fishing all to the glory of God and doing it responsibly. And not to just put a blanket thing and say all wetlands must be protected, but to drain certain wetlands on purpose in order to manage the earth properly. See, I, here's the deal. If we go on the offensive on this Earth Day thing, um, then we could be doing great things like pulling billions of barrels of oil out of Anwar, which we should be doing. It's there for us as a gift from God. And you know what? The, the, the environmentalists who are afraid that if we were to put in an oil pipeline from Anwar to a, a good seaport are afraid that the caribou might be worried about it. I've got pictures uh, you know, my dad, my biological father lives in Alaska. I've got photographs that I've seen over the years of caribou scratching their butts on uh, on Alaskan pipelines. I, we don't have to worry about that. You know, we <clears throat> so what what should we Christians do? We should step in and take over Earth Day. And put down and silence these earth-worshipping, tree-hugging earth muffins and say, yes, right, we have a biblical mandate from God to subdue and have dominion over the earth. Thank you. We will, we will absolutely make sure that those who are abusing their power are brought to justice and that our rivers remain clean and that we will mine responsibly. We will drain wetlands that, that really need to be drained and manage the earth properly. We will fish and continue to subdue the earth and, and enjoy fishing, but we will not overfish and deplete those fishing stores. Yeah, we're going to do all of that. And why? Because God created the earth as good, and he told us to have to basically use it to our benefit. And we're going to do so, and we're not going to let you people who follow, who basically worship a false god, that's the earth, uh, write policies anymore on this. We're going to take over, and we're going to write responsible policies and basically take this away from you. That's the solution. Go on the offensive. Okay. Make these folks uh, go on defense and basically say, nope, we're not going to let you be the ones in charge of this anymore. You've mismanaged it because your worldview is incompatible with reality and you worship a false god. Something to consider. All right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> It's 
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. I'm here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay, when I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Quando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Warning, if you worship Mother Earth, you're worshiping a false god, an idol. That's right. All right, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can support us financially and partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and clicking on one of two buttons. One will say, join our crew. The other says, donate. Joining our crew, what you're doing is signing up to 
uh, basically automatically contribute $6.95 a month to Fighting for the Faith. He's saying, that's not much money. Right, exactly. That's kind of the uh, the idea on purpose. Our goal is to get to 1,000 listeners. We have just about 300 uh, more listeners that we need to reach our goal of 1,000 listeners. And once we get there, what does that guarantee? It guarantees on a monthly basis we're able to pay all of our bills, at least minimally what we've budgeted for for this uh, past year. So uh, if you haven't joined our crew, this is a great time to do so. And, of course, if you would like to send in a contribution of your own choosing, as far as the amount is concerned, click on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So there we go. That 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 was my opening segment I, on Earth Day. You know, I just, I'm I'm telling you, you know, I listen. We can sit here and we can complain and say you talk about how stupid the environmentalists are. And the thing is, is that they have some kind of a point. Uh, the problem is, is that they've you know they don't come at it from the biblical worldview. We as Christians, we need to celebrate what God has created and the gift that he's given us in the earth and manage it properly. And thank God for all the things that we're doing in in the name of subduing and having dominion over the earth, which make our lives better. And I refuse to apologize for it. So that, you know, just something to consider. All right, here. um, uh, Let's see here. I want to remind, I didn't tell you guys this. (laughs) Sermon Cage Might today in hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. I have found a female... um, Episcopalian pastrix, and uh, she preached a sermon on the um, parable of the prodigal son, and uh, wow, it's a train wreck. And so, you know what I thought? I thought I would do it. This doesn't even sound fair. I mean, she's gonna have. I'm gonna have a sermon cage fight between her and Pastor William Swirla. And we're going to listen to Pastor Swirla's sermon on uh, the prodigal son that he recently preached, and uh, and uh, this pastrix named uh, Mary Petty Anderson uh, from Grace Episcopal Church in Bainbridge Island, Washington. So we're going to be having a sermon cage fight in hour number two today on the parable of the prodigal son, and it's not even fair. I mean, you know, because this woman preaches like a girl. <clears throat> Moving. <laughs> Moving along here. Yeah, I'm going to get email on that one. I just know it. Okay, Philip Goldberg of the Huffington Post. But have I mentioned the fact that the Huffington Post is like a, just a complete quagmire, uh, an unending source of bizarre theological ideas? Philip Goldberg has written an article for the Huffington Post entitled Toward a Broader Understanding of the Functions of Religion, to which I'm sitting there going, hmm, this is interesting. A broader understanding of the functions of religion. Well, here's the deal. Um, Biblically, we Christians basically need to say um, the only functions of religion that are valid are the ones that God has created. The only functions of religion that are valid are the ones that God has created. And all the other religions, uh, regardless of their functions in society, are false religions. And all the people who follow those other religions are worshiping false gods and are guilty of the sin of idolatry, which is breaking the first commandment. It's just something to keep in mind. But anyway, here uh, here's um, Philip Goldberg's uh, piece, the opening to it. We tend to equate religion with belief systems. Okay, And to think of religious people as individuals who believe in or have faith in a particular set of doctrinal principles. Got to stop him there. 
Uh, no. Uh, if you are a Christian and you have faith in doctrinal principles, you, you have the wrong object of your faith. Okay. I've mentioned this before and something I'll be talking about for years to come, I'm sure, should the Lord tarry and allow me to continue to this program. But faith is like eyesight. Okay. You, when you're without the help of a mirror, you can't even see your eyeballs. And, uh, and so as a result of it, um, you know, whatever you focus your eyesight on, that's the thing you're looking at. Faith is similar in that sense. So the question is, what do you focus your faith on? If your faith is on your religious or doctrinal or theological system and you have faith in your religious doctrinal system, you actually have faith in the wrong thing. Now, uh, the, the, you, one of the critiques you can say about the, um, prosperity gospel is that they have faith in faith, which is silly. It's circular. Um, we Christians, have faith in Jesus Christ. He is the author, perfecter, and object of our faith. He is our great God and Savior who has come to earth to die on the cross for our sins and offers us forgiveness of all our sins and calls us to repent and to trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. And when it comes to to belief systems, when it comes to Christian doctrine, what we basically say is, is that um, man, it, it, how did Luther put it? The, the human heart is an idol factory, I-D-O-L, not I-D-L-E, but I-D-O-L, an idol factory. And as a result of it, we are tempted daily and much by our own sinful flesh as well as the devil to believe wrongly about God and to create uh, competing gods that are idols. And these idols, just because they're not totem poles or you know carved out of wood or stone or made out of precious metals, are idols every bit as much you know as any other idol. And these idols, many times, are made up of ideas, thoughts, or words. And so, when you have false doctrine, what you're doing is you're exalting your ideas and your idolatrous concepts about God above what God has clearly revealed about Himself in His in His Word. And so. The correct Christian thing to do is is basically say when you have ideas about God that contradict God's word, those ideas are to be rejected because those are idolatrous ideas. They give us information about a false God, a God of your own making. So that's the way we look at it. But we continue. By defining religion in that way severely restricts our understanding of what religion is. Mm, Okay. Or or, Or can be at any rate. Oh, religion has the potential to be something powerful, apparently, according to Philip Goldberg. In in the lives of individuals, it also distorts the conversation about religion. By expanding and deepening the way we frame the subject, we can examine religious institutions and spiritual phenomena in a more productive way. Uh, Here's a model that I find useful. Productive way? A, A productive religion. Productive at what? When we talk about productive, that's that's a term we use in the business world. Uh, what are your productivity figures for this quarter? Well, you know, I've made 10,000 widgets. Productivity, religion as productivity. Okay, <clears throat> well, I get the feeling that Philip Goldberg's ideas regarding religious productivity uh, may not be in line with Scripture, but here's the model that he's found useful. Let me let me continue. He says, as I see it, Religion in its most complete form serves five basic functions. I've given each of these a name beginning with the prefix trans, which means across, through, or beyond, because religion at its best crosses boundaries and points to realities beyond the ordinary. 
really, how, how did you how do you know this, Philip? How I mean, can you tell me where you discovered that religion is at its best when it crosses boundaries and points to realities beyond the ordinary? Jesus, by the way, when he would tell parables about the kingdom of God, he wouldn't point beyond the ordinary. He said the kingdom of God is like a fishing net. Kingdom of God is like yeast, you know, worked into a big, huge lump of dough. Uh, the kingdom of God is like a lost pearl. The kingdom of God is like a sheep. The kingdom of God is like a, a farmer who sowed seeds. <laughs> anyway, according to Philip Goldberg, these five transmogrifying uh, um Functions that he th- finds um, that religion is at its best are, one, transmission. By the way, I've had the transmission go out of my car. Not in the, That is not an inexpensive repair. <clears throat> Sorry, transmission. He says, to impart to each generation a sense of identity through shared customs, rituals, stories, and historical continuity. So transmission is basically... Uh, uh, some kind of cultural community thing. See, that's the thing. Christianity can be practiced in any culture. We continue. Translation. To help individuals interpret life events, acquire a sense of meaning and purpose, and understand their relationship to a larger whole in both both in the social and cosmic sense. Um, okay, so this is purpose-drivenism. Translation is purpose-driven. Okay, yeah, I, I, yeah, when, when Christians do have a sense of purpose, but they're God's purposes. And, uh, all right, transaction, to create and sustain healthy communities and provide guidelines for moral behavior and ethical relationships. Um, four, transformation, to foster maturation and ongoing growth, helping people become more fulfilled and more complete, and transcendence to satisfy the longing to expand the perceived boundaries of self, become more aware of the sacred aspect of life. Um, what about having your sins forgiven and repenting and trusting in Christ and regeneration and salvation? Hmm. Let me continue. Among other things, the, func- the functional view helps explain why people choose to stay involved with a religion even when they don't fully approve of the institutions they belong to and don't believe all of their traditions. This is a completely worthless view of religion, by the way. Uh, and this is not Christianity. Okay? Christianity really is a- isn't about the things you do. The Christianity is the story of what God has done for you and how God... Basically, is you know, what what's we, what is revealed in God's word is the wrath of God that's that's soon to be revealed to the whole world, uh, and we learn in God's word that we've all sinned and rebelled against God, and no amount of morally improving ourselves is going to make the situation any better. In fact, it might actually make it worse. And therefore, we're called to repentance and the forgiveness of sins, repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And through the preaching of that good news, we are regenerated, we are renewed, and then set free from our great foes, sins, death, and the devil, so that we can love God and love our neighbor and serve our neighbor in love. But um, Philip Goldberg's generic five purposes are Christless. 
And they basically assume that religion is something that you do, and religion is used to shaping you into a um, a useful member of an overarching community. And notice the attack on individualism. It's subtle, but it's there. Individual salvation, not on the list. I mean, the reality is, is that these ideas regarding the functions of religion that uh, Philip Goldberg is promoting, transmission, translation, transaction, transformation, and transcendence, um, you can be a Muslim, you could be a Buddhist, you could be a Hindu, you could be a, you can follow Confucianism, you can be a, you can follow Jainism, you can uh, be an animist, you know, um, you can be a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness, but, um, these this uh, functional idea of religion if this is what you reduce christianity to you lose all of the you lose christ if you basically turn christianity into this functional view you lose christ and him crucified for your sins and basically christianity just becomes one of many valid symbol systems uh you know religious symbol systems you know that helps create and form identity and community through through uh shared rituals and stories and things like that. In fact, you you can almost assume based upon what, you know, the, I mean transcendence, let me read this transcendence definition to satisfy the longing to expand the perceived boundaries of the self become more aware of the sacred aspect of life and experience union with the ultimate ground of being. What's the ultimate ground of being? Nirvana, Brahman, um yeah, the problem with this is that this functional view is completely devoid of the one true God. It's devoid of the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. We continue. Uh, among other things, the functional view helps explain why people choose to stay involved. I read that. Okay, so that applies mainly uh, to the first three functions, which are the ones we tend to think about when we talk about religion. But adding the other two functions to the discussion expands the perspective radically. It also explains a great deal about Contemporary spirituality. Contemporary spirituality. And yeah, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in the faith once delivered to the saints. The same faith that Father Abraham, that Noah had, that, that Abraham had, that Noah had, that Adam had. The faith in the pr- coming promised one who would crush the head of the serpent and whose heel would be bruised. I, I want, I want to have that faith, that ancient faith. That faith once delivered to the saints. I'm not interested in contemporary spirituality. For better or for worse, organized religions in the West have emphasized the first three functions, but they have historically failed to provide opportunities for authentic transformation and transcendence. What a load of garbage. Could you back that up with any facts, uh, Philip? Uh, That shortcoming has been a driving force behind several important trends. For one thing, it accounts for the rise of an entirely new religious category, spiritual but not religious. Surveys indicate that anywhere from 15 to 30 percent of the population is in that cohort, depending on the polling uh, source. Thereafter, personal growth and direct spiritual experience, and they'll go wherever, wherever they can to find it. Well, that's kind of the idea. They can go where you know they go. They'll go wherever they can to find it. The problem is they might be experiencing something transcendent or paranormal, but it ain't the one true God. 
Uh, the yearning for transformation and transcendence also explains the burgeoning interest in the long-hidden mystical teachings, Kabbalah, and other forms of Jewish mysticism. Contemplative Christianity is exemplified by the likes of Meister Eckhart, Teresa of Avila, and Thomas Merton, and Sufism, the uh, tragically suppressed and harassed school of Islam that most people associate with the medieval poet Rumi. Rummy? Yeah, okay. But perhaps the most significant phenomenon driven by the absence of transformation and transcendence in uh, mainstream religion has been the explosion of interest in Eastern traditions. What started with spiritually adventurous baby boomers in the 60s and 70s has since affected tens of millions of Americans who engage in practices that were for centuries the exclusive domain of Hindus, Buddhists, and to a lesser extent, uh, Taoists. Elements of those traditions were translated and packaged for Western consumption, offering practical methods for transformation and transcendence that did not bump up against reason, science, or history. (laughs) Uh, So we're going to have transformation and transcendence without reason. By the way, I've been thinking about what I talked about yesterday, how I say the emergent church is not dead. Um, Last night, this is kind of on topic, but it isn't, but work with me here. Last night, I uh, was at church, and uh, uh, our pastor, he is, um, he's a real stickler with these uh, catechumens. Uh, the, my, my daughter is being catechized this coming Sunday, and uh, w- what our pastor does is he doesn't only have the kids sit in catechism for two years. I mean, that's how long it takes to, for him to teach them the faith. But in their second year, each of the catechumens, each of the kids who's going to be catechized and welcomed into uh, table fellowship at our congregation has to write a paper, and it's a long paper that chronicles the history of salvation from the beginning of the world until today. So it begins in Genesis, goes through Adam and Eve, uh, comes into uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Moses, uh, and then from you know from there to the prophets, from there to Jesus Christ, from there to the apostles, um, and then to the early church. The medieval period, the uh, you know the great falling away in the medieval period, you know where Rome takes over and uh, corrupts the church to the Reformation uh, through to today. And one of the things that I thought was interesting is that each of the kids picked up on this because our pastor is very adept. Uh, he, he, the guy is just a skilled theologian, and um, what he basically what what they basically picked up on is that right now in the church at large, there's kind of like three different camps when it comes to the visible church. And we're more or less talking about Lutheranism here, but I want to expand it out. Uh, The one camp is pietism. It's legalistic pietism that focuses in on subjective experiences and basically uh, the things you have to do in order to please God. You know, legalistic, if you would, legalistic, subjective Pietism and uh, Pentecostalism and, char- and the Charismatic movement fall into that category rather readily. The second strain is rationalism, and rationalism is where traditionally where we talk about liberalism. Liberalism is a form of rationalism. Modernist liberalism is basically, you know, is rationalistic in its thinking. It basically embraces uh, some of the tenets of scientism. Scientism. And this idea that, uh, you know, scientism and naturalism that, you know, that we have to look for scientific, rational explanations for how things happen in the world. Therefore, we can rule out miracles. Well, in in Christianity, modernist liberalism is is a dinosaur and is dead in most places. Okay, 
The third strain, by the way, is the historic Orthodox Christian faith. And, you know, confessional Lutheranism, uh, you know, in my camp, that's, you know, how we talk about it. Coming back to rationalism, yesterday I made the claim that the emergent church isn't dead. It's a new form of liberalism. And here's the important difference. The important difference is, is that traditional liberalism is rationalistic. This new liberalism is not rationalism. It's irrationalism. It, it basically embraces irrationality. It denies the logical law of non-contradiction, and it embraces irrationalism, trying to hold things in paradox that you know two mutually exclusive claims as true, even though they 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 self-destruct and are you can't reconcile the two of them because uh, you know they are they cancel each other out. So this new liberalism, the hallmark feature of it is irrationalism. Whereas modernist liberalism, it was rationalism. That you know, so you understand what I'm saying. So that this explains in part why we're seeing this rise in this new liberalism of of uh, basically these mysticism, these these ideas of mysticism, things like that. They 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 unlike their modernist predecessors. They don't deny that there's a supernatural or a spiritual world, but they're not going to embrace the spiritual world of Orthodox historic of the histor- Orthodox historic Christian faith. Instead, they tend towards and gravitate towards pantheism and panentheism, which basically says that God is in, God is everything or God is in all, and God has enfolded Himself into everything. And as a result of it, they can say that we can look for God in the other. And they say, how is that possible? Muslims deny uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. They deny that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. They deny that he died on the cross for our sins. And they'll say, oh, yeah, but God's still in them. How is that possible? Well, you just need to move beyond that, they say. Move beyond it. That's ridiculous. That's irrational. Right. This new, and this is the reason why it's been so difficult to define the emergent church, because it's not rational. It's not logical. In fact, it is anti-rational and it's anti-logical and wants to embrace as true things that are mutually and logically exclusive. Does that make any sense? Anyway, I'm going to stop right there. I think you get the idea of what's going on with this piece. If you want to read it, it's at the Huffington Post, and uh, it gives you a great idea kind of into the thinking of how uh, this new brand of liberals are you know, embracing these new contemporary spiritualities. And what's it all about? Irrationalism and denying the clear teachings of God's word regarding what true religion is, true worship of the one true God is, and that his word, you know, that that God is transcendent and that searching for God in these other mystical ways is tantamount to rebellion and idolatry. Okay, we're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous edition of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. When we get back, Sermon Cage Fight today. You're going to enjoy this. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. 
Sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. <laughs> Wipe out. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. German cage fight time today. One of the things I've wanted to do, and I, I'm going to weave into my normal repertoire a uh, series of sermons from mainline uh, liberals. That's the best way I can describe them. That's what they is. And I have been hunting, hunting for a um, for, for a female uh, pastrix of the um, liberal stripe who I could uh, who I could play sermons from you know, and review from time to time. And I have found one. And uh, anyway, hang on a second here. We're going to play our uh, sermon cage fight music. We got to do this officially. Hang on a second. Oh, yeah, that's better. Can't have a sermon cage bat without this music. Y'all ready for this? Great music to do to the white man overbite, too. Mm-mm, mm-mm. 
All right, our sermon cage fight today is between the Reverend Mary Petty Anderson of Grace Episcopal Church, Bainbridge Island, Washington. She will be in the sermon cage fight with Pastor William Swirla, Holy Trinity Lutheran Church, Hacienda Heights, California. Both of them will be preaching on the Gospel of Luke, the parable of the prodigal son. Now, if you've never heard a sermon cage fight before, the idea here is we have identical text. Two pastors heading off in two different directions. Who is going to handle the text properly? Who's going to point us to Christ? Who's going to point out that we are sinners in need of a Savior and give us Jesus Christ and Him crucified for our sins as the solution? Now, listen. The parable of the prodigal son, the thing is dripping with gospel, the forgiveness of sins. A gracious and loving and merciful God, the Father. This, I mean, if you miss the gospel in this text, then you're just blind. And you have no business being in the pulpit. Now, some people are going to point out the fact that, you know, wait a second, Roseboro, you're having a sermon cage fight between a guy, Pastor William Swirla, and a girl, a woman, um, the Reverend Mary Petty Anderson. Yeah, I, yeah, I get it. You see, that's the thing. Um, now, if you're complaining and saying this, it's not fair. It's a guy versus a girl. I would just simply ask the question: Where did this girl claim to get the authority to actually um, be a pastor and to preach God's word in public? God's word doesn't grant this woman that authority. So if she's going to be filling in at a man's job, then, well, you can't complain um, if the fair, the fight doesn't seem fair. Anyway, so without any further ado, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to read the gospel lesson for us, uh, taken from uh, Luke chapter 15. Hang on a second here. Luke chapter 15. And... Uh, both of them, uh, both Pastor William Swirla and um, <clears throat> Pastrix uh, Mary Petty Anderson, uh, read the first three verses from the Gospel of Luke chapter 15 and then dive into um, uh, verse 11. So, you know, because you know, in, in really, in reality, these three parables go together. The parable of the uh, lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. They all work together. However, the gospel reading for this particular uh, Lent sermon actually didn't read all of the, the, the uh, didn't read the parable of the lost sheep or the lost coin. So let me read the uh, selected gospel that they will both be preaching on. Uh, now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled again. This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. <clears throat> there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. <laughs> and when he had spent everything, 
a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, but I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, and put on a ring on his hand and the shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost, and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field as he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing, and he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. And he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all this, all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad. For this your brother was dead, and he is alive. He was lost, and he is found. This forms the basis for both of our sermons in today's sermon cage fight. First up is uh, the pastrix, Mary Petty Anderson of um, Grace Episcopal Church, Bainbridge Island, Washington. As he gets ready to leave the island on his on his homemade raft, Odysseus says, Zeus has covered the wide heavens with clouds and trouble the sea and the tempest. This journey I shall do, and this seems best to wait here as long as the timbers hold. Odysseus? You're quoting, huh? You're you're quoting from Greek mythology, from Homer. Wow. She had a necklace made as a gift, but Christmas came and went without her ever finding it. She searched in every duffel bag, every shoebox, and every purse. It is still missing. It is nowhere to be found. There are stories we tell and stories that others tell us. But the important part is what the stories tell us. A story opens a stop-down aperture for a bigger picture. But a gospel story is a pinhole into the unknown. Life as we live it has us dealing with forces like power and money 
juggling or avoiding questions like, shall I approach the unknown? Is the mystery too scary to encounter? Or could I get away as far away as I can from the dysfunction in which I have been living? The soul is a distant country, wrote Heraclitus. And that is the destination of the prodigal son. He is on a soul search. Who is he? What's out there? What scripts are running through his veins? Is he wounded in ways that we know nothing about? And he leaves. He does what he must do. Huh? You are preaching on Luke chapter 15, right? Is behind him. But what he leaves behind is crucial to the journey. And then, then in that far country, he comes to himself. He comes to himself. He wakes up. Now awake again, he must do what he must do. What of the older child, refusing, pouting, seething with rage and disrespect, caught in a trap of habit and structure? There is no tidy ending to his story. A a trap of habit and structure? Huh? He watches the road, I suspect, every day. And one fine day, there he is. He runs and he kisses him. There is no sin to be forgiven. Uh, The text completely disagrees with you. He gets his confession out. Father, I have sinned against you. The son is confessing his sin. What do you mean there's no sin to be forgiven? Are you even reading the text, lady? Resurrection. This parable weaves itself around the twins of grief and angst. The one who leaves, the one who stays, and the one who waits They have all suffered. Each raft has been shattered. Each of the characters is submerged in the tempest of loss. And each has to swim on his own in the ambiguity. For the prodigal, the loss is of innocence, certainty, and place. For the older child, the loss is the chance to explore, to open the box, to... (laughs) What is this woman talking about? Wow. Um, I think Pastor Swirla might win via knockout because this lady is committing theological suicide. 
chapters are part of one integrated whole person with all of one's complexity. It is the person who is both steadfast and searching, the person unafraid yet fearful, longing to be alive, to see what is out there to be seen and angry, the person ready to forget the past and move on, but still hungry. Each part is one facet of a precious jewel, but it only sparkles because the facets are cuts in the stone. In the long run, though, this is your story. Somewhere you are in this story. And it comes to me that somebody may be looking over the wine dark sea. That maybe somebody is watching, waiting, standing at the doorstep, hoping for the day when you finally walk back across the horizon. The image I carry is of the prodigal crawling across the ground, climbing up the sturdy legs of his father, cradling himself into the arms of the one who gave him life. He enters the womb of his father. Oh, wow, that sounds painful. Um, uh, Mary, um, listen, um, how do I break this to you? Fathers don't have wombs. Yeah, this is probably why you don't want to have a female pastor. Just want to let you all listening know that. She's not, I mean, I'm hearing words, but none of this means anything, and except for the fact that apparently uh, she's added a new feature to the story of the prodigal son, and that is, is that the father in the story has a womb. Wow. Maybe we'll be in a place where we can be found. The truth is, you and I are the prodigal that someone is looking for. And in the end, no matter what road you travel, you're going home. Well, there you have it. It it wasn't long. Thank God. So whatever roads you travel, uh, you're going home. It's not about sin, but the father in the story has a womb. You're thinking this is just not fair. Okay, now for contestant number two, our reigning champion, Pastor William Swirla of Holy Trinity Lutheran Church, Hacienda Heights, California. Same text. Same week, even, and um, the name of his sermon is A Man Had Two Sons. Uh, here is Pastor Swirla. In the name of Jesus. When you think of your heavenly father, what sort of father do you have in mind? A kindly father, perhaps? Or perhaps a stern father? a harsh disciplinarian, a lenient father. 
When you pray these words, Our Father who art in heaven, what images come to your mind? I suppose a lot may depend on what sort of father you had when you grew up. Today's parable of the man with two sons, a father with two sons, gives us a picture of the father who rejoices in the return of his sons. A father who is prodigal with his forgiveness. A father who is quick to throw a party. A father who is outrageously lavish with his grace. The parable of the father with two sons is the third, really, of a three-part parable. For the sake of brevity, we skip the first two parts. The first two lead into the third. Parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And there is a pattern that is set with those two parables. A sheep or a coin are lost. The sheep or the coin is found. There is rejoicing. There is a party. The message is clear. There is much more rejoicing in heaven over a single sinner who repents, who turns to the Lord who has turned to him, than over a bunch who think they need no repentance. First mention of repentance and forgiveness there. Nice. The wayward return, the lost are found, and there is rejoicing. And that brings us to the man with two sons. The younger son tells the old man to drop dead. That's what he says in so many words. That's the effect of his demanding his inheritance money early. Father, give me the inheritance that is due me. In other words, drop dead, old man. I want your money. And incredibly, the father does exactly that. He legally drops dead. And he divides the property between his two sons. He gives the older son the land, which was his, his firstborn. And he gives the younger son money to buy land of his own somewhere else. Now, you know how it goes with young men and money. Particularly inheritance money. Money you haven't worked for. It rarely goes well. The money was gone before you knew it. Wasted on what the scripture says is reckless living. Without going into any of the sordid details. Prodigal living. Hence the name of the parable, the prodigal son. We always focus on that son, don't we? But it's a mistake to focus entirely on the younger son. This is about a father with two sons. And both play a part in the parable. Out of money... The young man takes up work in a Gentile's pig pen, which is about as bad as it gets for a Jewish boy for whom pigs were considered unclean. About the time that Purina pig chow starts to look good, the young man comes to his senses. And that, I'm afraid, is the case with most, most of us, isn't it? Until we spend a little bit of time in the pig pen, so to speak, we rarely come to our senses and repent. And your Father in Heaven knows this too. And He'll often let you wallow in your mess that you've made for a while 
until you come to your senses. We often overlook that about God's fatherhood, I think. We expect him to bail us out instantly out of every trouble that we've created, out of every bad situation we got ourselves into, even when we have no one but ourselves to blame, and then we get mad at God when he doesn't come to our rescue right away. But sometimes he just lets us wallow in the pig pen for a while so we know how it is in his house. Well, the younger son starts to realize that he had it much, much better under the roof of his old man than his current situation, slopping hogs for a Gentile. And so he devises a little plan to get back home again. He would confess his sins. I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then he cuts a little transaction or a deal. Make me one of your servants instead. And that's the way we expect this story to go. It's what Jesus' hearers certainly expected when they heard it. They expected this young man to return to his father's house, groveling on his knees, begging, tearfully pleading with his father to let him back as a servant. And Jesus' hearers would have expected the father to be hard and indifferent. That's right, absolutely. Uh, Bailey has a good section on this in his um, Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes. Great stuff. We continue. Cold, turning his back on his wayward son who wanted him dead and was only interested in his money turning his back on his son until he was good and sorry for what he had done and for the insult that he had sustained. His hearer, Jesus' hearers would have expected the father to go along with the plan and to make his son a slave, probably the lowest rung of slave in the household, just to make the point that that's not how you treat your father. But the last thing that Jesus' hearers would have expected was for the father to go running past the neighbors down the road to greet his wayward son as he came across the crest of the hill. But there he is. He goes and he looks out, and you know that he's been looking out day after day, waiting and watching for his son to return. And then he sees that little shadow on the horizon, and he recognizes his walk. And he says, that's my boy. And he goes running out to meet him right in front of all the neighbors who are clucking their tongues at this father who goes after his wayward son. The last thing that Jesus' hearers would have expected was for this father to embrace his son, still reeking of the pig pen, and place the robe and the ring of sonship on him before he even gets his little confession out. The last thing they would have expected was for this father to kill the prize fattened calf and throw a party for this kid who recently wished his own father dead so he could get his grubby hands on the inheritance money and invite all of his deadbeat friends probably who weren't any better than this boy because you know it's who you hang around with that counts, right? And so it is in the world of religion too. The last thing the religious expect is for God to be like this father, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love, willing to run down the road 
to meet the sinner. The last thing religion expects is a God who justifies the ungodly while they are still sinners. A God who is reconciled to his enemies while they are still at war with him. In the religious world, the father of this parable is not a hero. He's a dupe, a softy pushed around by his brat son. But in the economy of God's grace, this is a picture of God's undeserved kindness towards sinners for Christ's sake. Notice that the son doesn't even get his confession out before the father is embracing him and calling for the robe and the ring and the sandals and ordering servants around. Note this, please, when you confess your sins. You are doing so in the embrace of your father's forgiveness. When you confess your sins, you are doing so in the embrace of the father's forgiveness. And amazingly, there's no place for a deal in this embrace. The son never gets to the part about make me one of your servants. That's unheard of in this father's house. And that's one of the several take-home lessons. There is no deal-cutting with your heavenly father. This is the God who drops dead to save sinners. This is the God who dies for enemies. This is the God who seeks and who saves the lost. This is the God who literally becomes our sin. He doesn't simply bear our guilt and our punishments. He does that. He becomes our sin. As our older brother, Jesus, the Son of God, left his father's home to join us in the pig pen of our sin and our misery and our death, Jesus did what the older brother in the parable would not do, did not do. He went out to seek and to find us, to rescue us from the muck that we had made, to bring us back to his father's home, to lay down his life as a ransom to save us and to buy us back from our servitude to sin, to death, and even, yes, to the law. And so the celebration begins, the stakes are on, the music is playing, the lost son returns to a party. A father had two sons, two sons. The older son is out in the fields working, working dutifully. He smells the food, he hears the music, he asks a servant, what's going on here? And he hears the news. Your brother has come, and your father has thrown a party for him. And the older son is enraged and refuses to even take one step toward the house. How could the old man do this? Throw a party for that deadbeat kid who wasted his inheritance money with prostitutes. By the way, who said anything about prostitutes, and how does he know? Again, it's the father who comes out to the older son. This is the father who always comes out for his sons. The father stops at nothing to gather his children, and he pleads with his son to come to the party. But the older son would not. He's the religious one. See, the younger one is the rebellious one, the older one, the religious one. They always are. The oldest in the family, they're always religious. I know. I'm, I'm the oldest. 
You know, 80% of clergy are firstborn male children. There's a reason for that. He's the commandment keeper, the rule doer. He's dutifully served his father, never disobeyed a single commandment all his life, and he's keeping book on everything. You never so much as gave me a goat so that I could have a party with my friends. Unlike the father, he disowns his brother. When this son of yours comes home, son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours. It's so much easier to point the accusing finger when we disown each other, isn't it? When we refuse to admit that we are family, that we are connected, that we are in the same gracious boat, it's so much easier to accuse one another. It's a burr under the saddle of religion that the obedient older brother and the rebellious younger brother are both under the same umbrella of the father's undeserved kindness. Religion hates this. We think we have to earn our way into the kingdom, and we devise religions that attempt to do just that. It seems a bit unfair, doesn't it, that the younger son gets a party after the way he treated his father, while the older, obedient son gets left out in the field. But then, whose fault is it if he never joins that party? The father's? No, it's his fault. Who's to blame if he spends the day out in the field under the hot sun instead of joining the festivities and enjoying a good steak and some music? It's his fault. What the older religious brother or son fails to recognize is that he really is in the very same boat as his brother. Everything that is of his father belongs to him, not by earning it, That's how the servants in the house operate. They earn it. But simply for being a son, without any merit or worthiness on his part. And until that older brother recognizes the sheer prodigal outrageousness of his father's grace and goodness, he will never join the party. He will never have a good laugh at how crazy the old man really is. He will never taste and see the goodness of his father's house. He will never do a single chore or a task out of gratitude and love. Hmm? Jesus told this parable because the religious types, the Pharisees and the scribes, were grumbling over the kind of company that Jesus kept, especially at table, tax collectors and sinners. And the parable applies as much to us today, whether as rebellious younger sons, which we are, or religious older sons, which we also are. Both are in need of repentance Both are in need of seeing their father in a new and a different way. The younger son saw his father as a vending machine, a source of quick inheritance money. And the older son saw his father as a transaction partner, a deal to be cut, a bargain to be made. In his repentance, the younger son learned something, and today he teaches us something here. There is no bargaining in the embrace of God's mercy in Jesus. There is only confession within the embrace of forgiveness that is already ours. That forgiveness comes by way of Jesus 
our older brother who kept the commands of his father perfectly, who became one of us and joined us in our sin and our death to rescue us, to rescue every single rebellious son and every single religious son. There is joy in heaven over the repentance of a sinner, Jesus tells us. When a lost son is turned home again, there is joy in heaven. When you come to the Lord's Supper this morning, when you walk down this aisle and up those stairs and you kneel, imagine yourself as that rebellious prodigal son returning empty-handed to his father, walking down the road. Oh, that, that's amazing. Oh, that is so good. That leads to home. And imagine the father saying to his eternal son, as you receive the son's body and blood, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother, your sister, was dead and is alive again. He or she was lost and now is found. In the name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs> oh, that wasn't even fair. Oh, man. Oh, that was not even fair. Why? Because a female pastor is already in open rebellion against God, and there's no way in Hades a female pastor is really going to bring you God's law and the gospel, true repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Mary Petty Anderson just was petty. She wandered off into Greek mythology and and spent eight minutes talking about nothing. Pastor Swirla, 15 minutes of riveting law and gospel, pointing us to Christ and our merciful Father, our ridiculously crazy forgiving Father, who wants to party. And who does party when sinners repent, including you, including me? And you talk about what's the picture of heaven? What's the picture of the eternal life? The marriage feast, the wedding party of the Lamb. Oh, doesn't get any better than that. New heavens, new earth, it doesn't get any better than that. Forgiveness of all of our sins, it doesn't get any better than that. And what was the difference what we, b- between what we heard today between Pastor Swirla and Pastor Pastrix Anderson? One believes, the other doesn't. One truly has faith in Christ and believes God's word. The other may as well be an atheist. All right, we're rapidly approaching the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your partnering, your financial partnering with us in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can support us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you will see two yellow buttons. One says join our crew. The other says donate. 
Uh, when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month. That's nothing. It's hardly anything. And once we get to a 1,000 listeners who've done that, then we have, well, we're able to pay all of our bills month after month. Important stuff. And, of course, if you'd like to if, you know, decide the amount that you would like to contribute yourself, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, what would you think? Would love to get your feedback. You can email me regarding anything. Today's edition, previous edition, whatever you'd like to talk about. Email is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you. Not the next week. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. May, <laughs> may God richly bless you with the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Oh, man, I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs>